Welcome to the Better Business, Better Life podcast. Terry DuPont is the founder of DuPont Advisory Group, a group dedicated to providing comprehensive services to successful business owners, medical, and other professionals. Terry has top-of-the-table status in the prestigious International Million Dollar Roundtable, placing him among the top one-tenth of 1% of all professional financial advisors in the world. Terry's philosophy is, I've learned that I grow and prosper more by focusing on the success of others rather than fretting over my own. Terry is a certified financial professional with the Institute of Financial Wellness, an advisor for the power of zero taxes in retirement, chartered retirement plans specialist, certified wealth preservation planner, and certified philanthropic developer. On the podcast, Terry brings together experts in their field who have succeeded in building their business to share their secrets with you. And now, here's your host, Terry DuPont. Welcome, everybody, to this week's uh, episode of Better Business, Better Life, Building on Your Success. And I'm your host, Terry DuPont. Today and this week, um, we have Paul Sugar with us. Uh, Paul is a, a state and a probate litigation attorney, and he's from the uh, or in the Cleveland area. Um, Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Terry. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be here today. Well, we, we, we love having you. Yeah. And you look great, by the way. So <laughs> thank you. I, I'm doing my best here. Uh, you, you got me uh, before Thanksgiving dinner. So, um, you know, that I'll probably be about five to 10 pounds heavier if I do it right here on in a couple of days. OK, well, we'll get it out of the way then. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Paul, I, I just mentioned to the, you know, our audience uh, who you are and what you do. But uh, could you tell me and our uh, listeners uh a little more about what you do and why you started your career? Uh, so for me, I was uh, actually a sports journalist. I, I graduated from Ohio University's journalism school in uh, 2003 and worked for newspapers in Florida, Washington State, even North Carolina before I started realizing um uh, that there was just going to be issues around 2007 and eight when we had the economic crisis. Um, I read a lot about what companies were doing to come out on the other side and they were investing, you know, they said the companies that really could invest in themselves during that time were going to be more successful when uh, the recession ended. And uh, that's why exactly what I did. I went to law school. Uh, I'm, I'm from the Ohio area. I moved uh, up to Cleveland and uh, went to law school and then uh, was fortunate enough to start clerking for uh, the law firm where I'm at currently, which is uh, Reminger. They are a full service uh, civil defense firm, do a lot of insurance defense, medical malpractice defense, different areas like this. But interestingly, they uh, had a, a very, you know, we like to call ourselves a, a boutique group inside our, our medium sized firm of just probate litigation department and um, probate litigation as we're probably going to discuss is just, is just an exploding field. There's about $55 trillion that are going to pass between generations, especially with the passing of the baby boomers. And that's just some estimates that I've read. I've heard bigger numbers. I've heard 60 trillion, I've heard 45 trillion, you know, but you know, the average number I hear is usually around $55 trillion 
better passing. And unfortunately, when you involve humans and family dynamics into those issues, um, you know, litigation tends to happen, especially when you have that large amounts of money. Sometimes it's, you know, and, and people always say you got to have an elevator speech as an attorney about what you do. But, you know, it, it's really hard. I did a presentation a, a week ago about probate litigation and a probate litigation avoidance. And we just had a list of the different type of things we do. And it was a little, you know, even, you know, for me, shocking when I saw the list all put together of different types of things. You know, sometimes it's guardianships, you know, issues that start pre-death, you know, uh, conservatorships in certain states. Uh, Britney Spears made this a very, very famous topic, uh, you know, because she was under guardianship. Somebody else is making decisions. It happens a lot in an elderly person. They might lose decision-making capacity and might not have their estate plan or powers of attorney in order. Or the powers of attorney simply might not work for one reason or another. That can create tugs of war. Um, sometimes a very common thing is beneficiary designations. You know, people may have their will, they may have their trust, but they might not realize that their uh, bank accounts are payable on death to their ex-wife or somebody else that they didn't change, you know, which creates federal and state law issues. Um, so sometimes we're fighting about beneficiary designations. Sometimes we're actually just an old fashioned will contest or trust contest or construing those documents. So there's a lot of different issues that can arise, um, you know, before death, upon death. Um, and, and again, with families, I think, especially where I'm coming from in Ohio, you know, a lot of people, the economy in Ohio wasn't good when you graduated in 2003. So people have really spread out, you know, you can't, anywhere I went, I always met different Ohioans, whether it was North Carolina, Florida, anywhere else, uh, we, we spread out and, you know, but those issues at that time and distance among people, I really think it also can create some of the interesting family dynamics, a lack of communication and the other issues that I see with probate litigation, because this area just between the money and everything else, it's exploding. Uh, when I joined my firm in, uh, 2013, uh, and got my license as a lawyer. Um, we were about six or seven probate litigation attorneys. We are now up to 12, 13, maybe even 14 at this point. I should check. Uh, we just had somebody pass the bar. And I think that just speaks, you know, in Ohio, I think one in three or one, or excuse me, that might be a little high. I've seen one in five Ohioans are going to be 65 and older. Um, we're one of those gray states. I think it's a phenomenon that you know, it, we're going to see in this country for the next 20, 30 years, where it's just going to be a very old population, a lot of wealth, very successful generation passing money down. And um, that's, in a nutshell, I'm going to be the person that when issues arise, um, you know, our practice group is, is going to get involved usually uh, one way or another. You, you started talking a few statistics there and then, uh, I there's about 10,000 of us baby boomers <laughs> on average retiring every day until the year tw uh, 2033. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The, I mean, and you're talking about a generation that has created a significant amount of wealth for itself, had very successful, you know, was really ahead um, but now is also a stress generation because they're hitting retirement, fixed income in a high interest rate environment, 
lot of different issues for them to deal with. And, you know, on top of that, that generation, we're talking about a generation, I'm, I'm borderline Gen X and millennial myself. So I, I do remember days where I grew up mostly, I didn't get my first cell phone uh, until college. So it was, uh, I remember that life, but there's, there's a different type of communication, you know, it, when I'm doing planning for somebody who's a millennial or Gen Z um, or helping them with their estate litigation problems, you know, they're very different communicators than a baby boomer is who might be a little closer to the vest. It might be, they might take a view, it's my money. And these communication breakdowns are without a doubt the number one cause of the issues that I'm seeing. And I have to expect, you know, the hardest part about being in some of these disputes, sometimes I'm helping people who, you know, are just clearly being financially exploited. Their caregiver got on their accounts, taking money from them, doing different things. But a lot of times it's just a family fight. And it's really unfortunate because I would expect the decedent um, didn't spend their whole entire life working and saving up that nest egg to be able to pass on an inheritance, which is still, you know, even with 55 trillion passing, that's a hard thing to do for some people and uh, be stuck in that situation where, um, you know, the money's going to a lawyer or somebody else because they haven't been, you know, uh, because of some family issue that they couldn't head off at the past prior to death. I'd like to go back a second, if you don't mind. And and, sure. uh, and before you were an attorney, um, so <laughs> you know, your background uh, as an award-winning journalist uh, before making the transition into law is quite fascinating. And um, so my question, I guess, is, how do you believe your experiences as a reporter influences your approach to estate trust and, and probate litigation today? It's a narrative. Um, to me in my line of work, um, who establishes the narrative and does it first and can do it well with supported facts, not just what I say, but actually point to, you know, black and white records, whether they be medical records to show somebody had dementia, didn't know what they were doing when they signed important documents or, or financial records showing, you know, uh, transactions that just don't make sense. It's uh, the ability to establish a narrative, um, and then just also be comfortable talking to people, you know, as a journalist, um, you would just have to cold call people and build a rapport and get them to trust you. It's not, you know, dissimilar to what what's going on here. You, we got to talk. We have to be able to interview and we have to be able to pull out information and then we have to verify that information, whether it's true or not. And while it's definitely two different styles of writing, um, the writing background and being, you know, that's what I say to people, you know, the uh, the amount of writing practice that I've had being a, a journalist for newspapers and, you know, slash websites, uh, you know, where they were transitioning at the time, I would have to basically write something every single day um, for an audience. And, you know, that type of writing practice is just invaluable, you know, uh, when you're a lawyer. I agree. I agree. Good answer. Yeah. That's, that was awesome. Um, what has been, your biggest challenge during that transition? The biggest transition for me was just, I, you know, my parents aren't litigious people uh, and neither was I. I had not ever been in a lawsuit. 
before really getting barred and being actually able to represent somebody. You know, I had, I had some law clerk experience, had gotten to watch from the sidelines. Um, but it's an adjustment. Uh, working for people who are in a terrible situation, um, most people don't want to hire an attorney. A lot of our people, you know, that is the nice thing. I get to actually work with people um, and it's a lot of one and done, you know, they come in, they have a problem, they need help solving it, or they need someone to help them through the process. And, you know, death, you know, is, which is usually the triggering event for somebody needing somebody like me comes in a lot of ways. Sometimes I'm dealing with people who have unfortunately committed suicide. Sometimes I've, I've dealt with, I've had three to four different murders in my career, um, which create all sorts of different, you know, emotional issues that are going on beside and my ability to create empathy with those people and understand with them, you know, what their limitations are, but also be true with them about these are the strengths. These are also the weaknesses and this is what I'm trying to do as an advocacy position. I think that was the hardest thing because as a journalist, we're supposed to be Switzerland. We're neutral. You know, we just want to hear the story. I want to hear your side. I want to hear the other side. And then I might want to talk to two or other three different people or do, you know, different research and verify it. You know, and again, there is a place for that in in the law, but it's not the same. I I my goal is trying to find pieces of the narrative and, you know, yeah, I may come across pieces of the narrative, but it's not my job maybe to make that very clear. You know, if the court asked me about it, I have a duty of candor. I got to disclose it, but it's really the other job side to craft their narrative and put it together where my narrative is centered on one client. So it, it took some adjustment um, without a doubt to just get used to, you know, being focused on not trying to get, the whole story, which is mm -hmm. still important as a lawyer, but it's it's more about getting the pieces and parts that are beneficial to my client and being able to put that out there and demonstrate to a, a judge or a jury, whoever's the trier of fact in my cases, I end up usually having both. You know, I want to be able to put a narrative in front of them that they are going to understand and find more believable when they're making the ultimate determination, you know, are they going to find for my client or not? Okay. Okay. Uh, Paul, as as someone who um, regularly lectures on a state and trust administration, what do you believe are the most common misconceptions uh, or uh, even overlooked aspects when it comes to estate planning, particularly in the context of litigation? One thing for estate planners. Um, Estate planning is a very high volume business. Um, a lot of larger law firms have unfortunately gotten away from it because they don't view it as an economic producer. And I really think estate planning is in a transition phase. A lot of them are in that older generation um, and are struggling, you know, because maybe they have gone out on their own and been very, very successful. But training that next generation um, is, is a difficult task uh, for them to have their own succession planning. So estate planners, I think, are really struggling to find that next next generation. Additionally, you know, because of some of the issues with having a high volume practice, 
And also just because clients, you know, again, most people die, you know, statistically without a will um, or any sort of estate plan whatsoever, which creates its own set of nightmares. You know, anybody listening to this, if you don't have an estate plan, you should consider at least whether that, you know, talking to an attorney about that. But a lot of times people, you know, it's not an exciting thing to go buy. It's not like going to buy a new car when you got to go buy an estate plan. Uh, you you don't you get a bunch of documents that really you're not going to be around to see executed when they are executed one day. So it's kind of a yeah, it feels good to put it in the 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 desk and you know and and know you have it done. But it's also one of those things that just like a car, it needs to be maintained. It needs regular checkups. It needs to be you know it needs a full plan. And I just, you know, again, estate planners to me, they, um, it, a lot of times they just, you know, people want flat rates. They want to just pay, you know, three to five grand for their estate plan, set it, forget it and go from there. And that's the problem I see a lot of times on probating estate plans, you know, that were done in the nineties where, you know, we're talking about a completely different tax environment than what we are dealing with now. Um, you know, and then on top of that, interest rates, depending on the, the how sophisticated, you know, uh, of an estate you're dealing with, you know, there could be issues there, taxes, everything else. And overall, one big critique that I have, you know, certain people, you know, they, they might want to do Medicaid planning or asset protection or do other different goals. You know, there's a lot of different things that an estate planner can do that I don't think a lot of people Think about it. if you're a professional as a doctor, for example, or even a lawyer like me, asset protection is very important just because of you know certain risks that you could be exposed to from plane and traffic, um, like an estate planner can do or a doctor can do. You know, if you make a mistake, it can be costly. And on top of that, um, estate planners to me sometimes are selling trusts because they want to sell another document. It sounds cool to have a trust, right? But do you really need it? Is a trust going to work out? Is it going to create tax headaches? On top of that, you know, as a litigator, when you trust, you know, and I'm talking, I do some estate planning. And when I talk to somebody and they want to set up a trust, I say, do you have someone you trust completely who is going to follow that document? Because I've had those phone calls where clients, uh, potential clients they never they never retain me but you know potential people they say hey we want to retain you we need help with the administering this trust here's a copy of the document please look at it you know so we can ask you questions i start talking to them about it and then they start telling me well you know before the decedent died she told me this she told me that she wants this to happen do you think we can do that and i look at the document as like you're really stuck with the document and where it is and they listen and they politely say they understand, then I don't hear from those people again. And what concerns me is I think there's an, you know, I see a lot of it because of my job, but I always say we may be seeing, you know, 5% of the trust fraud that ends up in litigation because people, you know, just they don't know or they don't get attorneys or by the time they do, the money's gone and it's not economical for the attorney to be involved. So, I mean, I, I think those are some of the big pitfalls is that estate planners should be trying to position themselves as someone similar to what you probably do, trying to be in your clients' lives, trying Absolutely. to be that person. Yeah. 
And I, I just a little comment on, on what you just mentioned previously uh, about the people that didn't hire you. It's because, in my mind, my my opinion, you weren't telling them what they wanted to hear, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct. And what and, and they unfortunately want you to they break didn't. the trust. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And they didn't. And they want to break the trust. I, I'm a lawyer. I can't help people break the law. And um, that's that's the situation. I would be assisting them in doing that. And I, I, I'm just worried that trust, because again, people are trying to avoid probate, right? There can be great reasons to avoid probate. Privacy is one of them. But, you know, a lot of times I always hear it, you know, well, you want to avoid the costs of probate. And I'm like, it's 500 bucks. Yeah. That's not a huge thing to have court supervision mm -hmm. to make sure that the document is carried out properly or the court will get involved and do certain things um, you know, that can be a small price to pay if you don't have the right person. Now, if you have if your best friend's an attorney or you have a great financial advisor or somebody else who's in the right age group or something like that, who can be a, a good fit for your fiduciary position. Great. You know, and somebody who's not going to risk their professional licenses to um, enrich themselves or do whatever they want to do after you die. Great. But, you know, I do think there is a tendency by estate planners who are just interested in maybe selling another document that maybe they don't need. And again, spending that time. And again, because they do flat rates, because that's what clients want, maybe spend some time making an hourly situation and show them what you can do, you know, show them the different options, talk with clients, um, you know, and spend time with them because, most people who need an estate plan, and really everybody does, but you know the 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 people who are really worried about it, and it's not an area to go cheap. You really need to be one. You need to make sure you have a qualified person doing it. Um, you should have a team. You should have an estate planner, financial advisor. Um, you know, different people all involved. Your accountant. You know. You, you need to really do that and then stay on top of it. And I just, again, it's just the nature of the business and human nature as well. It's not all the estate planner's fault. I just think people are hesitant sometimes to really want to spend time on this, even when they're, we're, I, I have this conversation with high net worth planners. Who, not something you know, that people just sit around, can't wait to do my estate plan, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah, you're all. not excited. Yeah. 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 Um, so now- yeah, you know, some people say, "Well, there's no immediate gratification to it," but there is some because after you do it, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, you know. But it's not like going out and buying that new car, right? So, okay. That's you're exactly right, and that's I think part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, Paul, in, in your experience, uh, what are some of the uh, key elements necessary uh, for successful representation in estate and trust litigation cases? That's part one. Part two is, are there specific skills or qualities that you find particularly crucial uh, in achieving uh, positive outcomes for your clients? Um, I think some of the main skills um, is you have to be able to listen. You have to also um be able to evaluate the economics of the situation. Most often when people come to me, they're coming to me because they're suspicious for one reason or another. And sometimes they turn into cases, sometimes they don't. Um, 
when I'm representing a fiduciary, I say transparency will set you free. If you are clear, if you are, you know, try to communicate, over communicate almost at the beginning and show you're trying to work with the beneficiary is more of a handshake relationship instead of dictating to the beneficiary, um, you're going to get off on a more positive uh, footing. And I think the same thing goes with uh, an attorney, the clients that I think I have the best relationships with, it's because we've discussed the issues, we've framed the issues and we've created a plan. And sometimes that that plan has multiple steps, but you know it, it really is about framing the issues, getting a plan, and not being afraid to change the plan or take the time to communicate, you know, when, when people, it is hard in this day and age, it's, I can communicate by my clients by email, text and everything else. Um, but, you know, trying not to over communicate, but also at the same time, make sure they know the key information they know, because that's my role. I'm an advisor. Um, they get to make their own decisions. Um, I, I can tell them what I think. And they may disagree with me. And sometimes I, you know, that comes to a point where I might not be the right client for you because I, or right attorney for you, because um, I don't, I think you're, you know, you're, you're litigating a case, uh, a $20,000 problem, like it's a, a $3 million problem, uh, you know, and it's not going to be economical for you. Uh, and being honest and truthful with the clients, not telling them what, they want to hear all the time. That's not my job. You know, I, I, and they even say that, well, it doesn't sound like you're representing me uh, very much in these times. Like, look, when I'm talking to opposing counsel, completely different person, you on the other hand need to understand both the strengths and the weaknesses. So you can make some decisions here and what the risk is, because when we go to trial, lots of things could happen. It's a 50, 50 coin flip you really need to be on board on being able to make this decision because if I only tell you everything is sunshine and rainbows, you're going to think you're going to go to trial and have a hundred percent chance of success. Out of disappointment. Gonna, yes. There's always a risk at trial, no matter what. On top of that, there could be appeals. There could be all sorts of different issues. Human, you know, more people are getting involved, the more chance for human error. So you got to be careful about that. And uh, so I think that second part, what was the first part of your question again? Uh, first part was uh, the experience uh, uh, that uh, the key elements necessary for successful representation of state and trust litigation. I think you answered it. Um, yeah, I hit I hit a little bit of both. They, they were, I did a good job. Yeah. You, 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 answered them both, you answered them both by answering them answering one. So you did a good job. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, uh, what is a mistake that you see way too many people make that's hard to undo as it relates? to asset planning, wealth management, retirement planning that involves the litigation of all of that on the, uh, on the uh, uh, estate side. Um, I think one of the most common mistakes um, is appointing the wrong person as the fiduciary. Um, to, Siblings might never get together, get along, but, you know, the, the parent wants to believe that they're going to figure it out. Um, I also see a lot of planning issues in split marriage situations, uh, second, second or third marriages, kids from a previous marriage. Um, 
not going through the proper steps of maybe a prenuptial agreement, but also, you know, separating out counsel. You know, I know that can be difficult conversations when you're getting married, uh, you know, and, and having a second spouse. But a lot of people don't plan through those issues as well. Um, and I that that is a really common litigation thing because you just have, you know, interests that may not align especially you know everybody may get along great while you're there but if you take you know the father out of the relationship and you know you're leaving a wife a second wife and the stepchildren from a, a previous marriage um tensions can get high quickly and people just don't have the right fiduciaries in place uh they don't have the right planning in place um, they maybe are getting themselves stuck or again, haven't changed the documents, you know, um, you know, prenuptial agreements and stuff also can be very rigid and sometimes backfire. Uh, Ohio actually just brought in postnuptial agreements. Uh, many states already have them. Ohio finally did it this year. You know, that's going to help. But, you know, the biggest pitfall is just, you know, in, in marketing, if you're an estate planning attorney or a financial advisor, you know, it's pretty easy marketing just to remind everybody each year, hey, it's, you know, I, I call it their estate plan birthday. I send them just a simple letter, happy birthday to your estate plan. You need to look at everything, you know, look at your beneficiary designations. Has anything changed? You know, um, has your nominated, you know, the person you nominated to get your children, should something happen to you? Did they get divorced? And maybe you're not as comfortable uh, within doing that. Maybe the person you nominated as a uh, fiduciary uh, declared bankruptcy and is in some rough you know, financial ways. Maybe they're not the right person anymore. And I put some of those in my birthday letter just to try to get people thinking. Now, do I hear back from a lot of people? No, most, a lot of people like to set it and forget it, but I feel like I'm at least serving them and if they do come back, you know, I do get occasional like people like, yeah, you know, this this plan isn't going to work. They pull the documents out. They think about what they've done and they realize that life isn't static in any possible way. I mean, a big saying is uh, people plan and God laughs. It's mm -hmm. it's it's a very common you know Yiddish phrase for a reason. And I believe it wholeheartedly because, you know, it you really need to put yourself in a position to be flexible and don't think of your estate plan as something rigid, you know, has your family situation changed? Maybe one son isn't as successful as the other two and you've had to help them out. Maybe you've gotten involved in starting a business with one or something else like that. You know, you need to be thinking about these issues and what happens after you die. And again, a lot of us, it's just a hard thought, even for myself, to think about what life would be like without me there. And, you know, the more you can get into that thought exercise, whether you're an estate planner or just somebody making an estate plan, um, it'll help head off those issues, you know, ahead of time. Because that's the problem. A lot of us, we start, we may talk about it. We may talk about it out loud among our family members. You know, we're taping this uh, before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's a common time where a lot of people talk about, you know, what what's going to happen when I'm gone and everything else. And, you know, or they might be at one son's house and not the other son's house telling telling people, hey, this is what I want to, you know, what I want to happen after death. And then they have a different story from the other son. And, yeah. and I always tell people, if you're making plans for after death, the yeah. people you, you want everybody in the room, 
You want everybody in the room. And I know, again, this is a hard thing for sometimes the baby boomers and that older generation. They really don't. It's our business. They're very private, different generation than most. But I tell them, you know, you know, Thanksgiving uh, is a is a great time. If you get everybody home, sit down, talk with them about what's going on and maybe pull out the documents. Where are they? You know, uh, what do they say? Who is the lawyer? Who should you contact? Um, you know, and go through them because you might actually, especially getting, you know, some other people's input might go, Ooh, maybe I do need to change this. Maybe, it, maybe this plan doesn't work anymore and be flexible about it. Cause just saying, Oh, I got a will divides everything equally among my four children. I'm done. It, it, life is a lot more complicated than that. In my experience. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul, how do you define success? Success to me is, you know, someone coming to you, you know, in my line of work, because they know you can solve the problem. I I knew I was starting to have success in my field when people would just call me or I would be referred by other counsel because they knew that I could help with this problem and had the right fit. And success, you know, to me, it, it's it's about contributing to the thought leadership in your industry, being involved, you know, in, in spending some of that time. You know, anybody can just be a lawyer and bill hours, but are you going to spend time looking at your area of law and trying to be on, you know, on the front edge, you know, getting involved in, uh, for me, it was getting involved in legislative committees in Ohio that helped shape uh, probate law, you know, and being able to be in front of it, because not only then am I contributing to uh, myself, but I'm also contributing to my community. And when you start feeling that, you know, you're, you know, it, it, it's a stressful job. It's, it's so stressful, a lot of work, a lot of emotion, but and, and a lot of people, I think, um, younger lawyers, especially if, if you're watching something like this, you know, I see a lot of drawback, you know, people want to talk about work-life balance and all sorts of different issues. And to me, that that's why I knew I had success is because I, you know, it just became part of my life. I know my billable hours puts food on the table for me and my family, but I'm also, you know, able to set my schedule control the hours that I'm working you know I'm not going to be after after I get done today I'm not planning to uh, be answering many emails until uh, Monday morning next week but um, you know finding those schedules and everything else now could somebody call me with an emergency uh, in certain situations you know and maybe I can find time for them you know that's the thing is trying to find that balance to me I've, I've put that in you know Taking when I go down to a legislative committee meeting, I might take my kids as well and my family as well, and we might spend time doing something else and traveling. You know, you got to try to integrate your mm -hmm. work, your passion, and if you can't integrate what you do into your daily life, you're probably in the wrong field, and you're not going to have the type of success you want because you could be very successful, but if you hate it. And you are constantly, you know, I, to me, it's that Monday morning or that Sunday night, like, 
oh, I just don't want to go back to this. If you're in that type of situation, um, something's not good. And that's what I, you know, yeah, I work a lot of hours, um, but I love what I do. And that that's that's the big thing to me is if you find that type of success where you're not only just people are coming to you, you can establish yourself, but you also feel like you still have that work-life balance. Um, you still have time for other things that matter to you, or more importantly, the ability to make sure you have time for those things. That's really where success is at. And I really do think the younger generation, I get it, it's hard. You know, you want that day one. It it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. I didn't, you know, even, I really loved being a journalist, but um, there were a lot of things I didn't like about it. I worked a lot of long hours in that job as well and weren't maybe seeing the fruits of it as I do uh, now. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing. It took working as a journalist for, you know, about 10 years, followed by going to law school and which I didn't really enjoy that much, uh, followed by, you know, starting out trying to reestablish yourself in a new career, which I didn't really enjoy that much at first. Um, you know, but being able to do that, I, and the pandemic was a big, big thing for me. Uh, you know, it was a moment where it kind of forced me to reset, think about my schedule and everything else. Like, do I need to come into the office every single day? You know, we're both working from home today doing this interview. Um, that's the new reality we're in. And you, you know, but again, do I need to be in the office to try to train the next generation? Do I need to still do certain things? Um, yes. You know, it's a, it's a very important part of uh, what we do. And, and like I said, you just got to have fine balance to just say, I want to only work from home. Maybe that's not the right fit. You really need to feel it out spend some time and I like to do it around this time of year, uh, end of the year, you know, am I happy? What can I do better next year? What, what changes, what are my goals? Spend time on that because if you spend time on that, you'll start thinking of yourself as more successful, um, regardless of what, what else is going on. Cause you'll be happy and happiness is the key to success. You can be successful if you're, if, you, if you're not happy and you're saying you're successful, um, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, is there anything you wish to share that we uh, haven't talked about, uh, Paul? I think we've hit uh, the main things. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on and talk to you about some of these issues. I do think um, if you're dealing with probate litigation issues, um, I'm only licensed in Ohio, but it's uh, it's it's one of those situations that it's a field that is growing. It's not uncommon. And sometimes just if you're a beneficiary of a, a large estate or trust, having an attorney to, to ask questions to or consult with, again, you know, it might save you a lot of headaches uh, down the road. Um, don't be scared of it. There's a lot of family dynamics that are rough. Everyone, I think, has that in their family a little bit. Um, so, you know, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be sad about it. Just, you know, do what's best, make your best financial decision. If you're going to inherit $2 million, paying an attorney five to 10 K to babysit and make sure it's done right, or walk you through the issues or put a team together. That's important. Don't just assume, you know, to be cheap about everything. 
use your lawyers. This is your life. Get an estate planning lawyer, get a financial advisor, you know, those costs, you know, surround yourself by, with people who know more than what you know, which I think is the theme of this podcast. And um, one of the main reasons I was drawn to it as well. It's a, it's a mantra of mine. Um, obviously uh, your uh, contact, your name, contact information is at the bottom of the screen, but uh, as uh would you like to let our audience know where they can go learn more about you? Uh, yeah. If you just Google my name, Paul Sugar, and go to the, the Reminger website, we actually have a great resource. Um, if you're an attorney interested in estate and trust litigation, we, we have a very, we have a great blog, um, a lot of great writing. We, we discuss about the different issues that we're dealing with in our field. And it's a broad field. I, I really cannot spend uh, I would, it would have to be a much longer interview to spend that much time talking about everything, but you should visit our website, look at some of those issues. And I'm always happy. Um, a lot of our organizations, we really do look at other states, what they're doing, especially on the legislative side. So I'm always interested in meeting people who are in this field or doing these type of issues and, and talking to them. So don't hesitate to reach out. And uh, again, I really appreciate you having me on, Terry. No, Phil or Paul, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, Paul, uh, it was glad, great to have you on. I uh, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, it was a great topic and uh, did a good job. Awesome. Awesome. So, hey, everybody, uh, thanks for joining us this week on Better Business, Better Life, Building on Your Success. I'm your host, Terry DuPont. Come back next week. Take care. This has been the Better Business, Better Life, Building on Your Success podcast. If you have questions about creating tax-free wealth and income, forward-looking tax mitigation, strategic risk mitigation, wealth preservation and legacy planning, and advanced financial management, go to DuponAdvisory.com or email Terry at DuponAdvisory.com. 49 faces look to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.